Hello, everybody. If you can settle down quickly, we're about five minutes late in starting the session, and this is the last session before lunch, so I'd hate to um, keep you away from that. Um, there's just one announcement um, at the start of this session, and that's just a reminder that if you've ordered a printed copy of the papers for this convention, to please collect them um, at the registration desk during the next break. Otherwise, um, it's my pleasure to introduce Yageshri Moodley to you. Um, Yageshri has um, a significant amount of experience um, that she's gained through her different working assignments across Deloitte and at Liberty in product development, pricing, valuations, auditing, solvency, SAM, specialist actuarial modeling. And currently at Liberty, she's involved in applying her actuarial skills and techniques to solving real-world challenges. And she tells me that this is what she most enjoys doing. So it sounds like a good fit work-wise there. Um, Yugeshi, thanks very much for, for sort of teeing up the discussion on what's a very topical issue in the industry today. I think with the implications of TCF um, and the focus on organizations to make sure that good customer outcomes are part of all we do in the industry, um, and the regulators focus in this area as well, that it's a particularly interesting um, topic. I think as we look abroad to, to the challenges from other regulators, certainly in their view of market conduct risk, this is one of the areas that they focus on quite a lot in terms of how are we managing our legacy books and what does it mean for the customers. Do we have the right balance between what we do for our customers and the outcomes that we generate for shareholders? I think it presents a number of big challenges on some of the basic tenants that have, have been part of our industry for, for a very long time, where service, access, and product features were all intertwined with each other and not necessarily separated out, whereas the modern trend is to have some separation of these duties and, how do we, and roles, and how do we get the old products to the same kind of standard of how we do things um, with the new generation products. So I'll hand over to um, Yugeshri to take us through the presentation. Thanks very much. How many of you used a cell phone today? Thank you. How many of you didn't use a cell phone today? Nobody. 25 years ago, 1990, would you have used a cell phone today? No. So in that time, technology changed, the environment changed, and your experience changed. And today we're going to discuss what that means for companies, and in particular, long-term contracts. We're going to look at customer experience. What is it, why does it matter, and how does it relate to strategy today? Then we'll look at legacy management. But this is not a technical presentation. I think we all appreciate the risks and challenges associated with this business. And I don't want to go too much into that, but I rather want to focus on joining the dots between these two concepts. And then I want to focus on what your role could be in your daily work. And ultimately, I, just like you, want to see customers get the best value for money experience, sustained over the entire contract term. 
So we're going to try a few different techniques today. You can call them accelerated learning techniques. So don't freak out if I ask you to like, raise your hand or chat to the person next to you. There's specific slots in the presentation where you can engage with the content in a way that makes sense to you. Is that good? Okay. <laughs> and your response matters to me. It makes me feel less nervous. Okay. <laughs> there is life out there. Good. So. Can I just see, before we start, how many of you work in a life insurance environment? That's your primary specialization. Okay, good. And risk management? Okay. And any short-term insurance or other? Okay, the minority. But um, my, my background is primarily in life insurance. This content is presented in a much more general way. So it's broadly applicable to, to companies like mining companies, to telecommunications. And I'd like you to see how it relates to your context. Okay, so customer experience. It's, this customer focus is not new, right? Everyone from Peter Drucker to Gandhi has something to say about customer service. But it does seem to have become a bit more of a buzzword recently. And my first question would be, well, why now? Why is it suddenly such a big deal? Now we're talking about customer-centric innovation and user-driven insurance. And it's being seen as something that is now central to business success. So if you just think about what makes a business successful, the first thing we notice is that that actually changes over time. So if you start at the bottom left here, at the turn of the 20th century, the most successful companies were competing on efficiency. So it was high volume, low cost, companies like Ford. Sixty years later, it was about distribution, so getting your product out there on a global scale. And companies like Walmart, very successful, still are. And then was the age of information. And companies like Google took it upon themselves to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible. And that led to the current age, already started, predicted to last about 20 years, and it's been called the age of the customer where technology has actually flattened the playing fields. It's not that the previous things don't matter. They do, but they're not enough anymore. So today, if you want to stand out, you've got to deliver exceptional customer experiences in addition to well-priced products, conveniently pr provided, and good information. So it's quite a challenge for an operating environment. But what is it? Now, a lot of this work draws on U.S. research done by thought leaders like Forrester and Temkin. And they, Forrester defines customer experience as the perception of what a customer thinks and feels about a collection of all the interactions they have had with the company. Now, the first thing that stands out is that beyond some basic level of effectiveness, customer experience is very strongly driven by emotional factors. How did I feel after that phone call? Did I feel valued? Do I feel like I can trust you? Now, Forrester suggests that up to 70% of exceptional experiences are because of exceptional emotional experiences. But that was just, you know, across all types of industries. How much more important is it when your product is an emotional product? When your insurance products in particular are driven very strongly by fear, anxiety, but also by hope, and very strongly motivated by love. So I don't have the stats on this, but it's an interesting question. And it becomes quite a challenge, because now, how do you deliver in your operational teams 
consistently positive emotional experiences that go beyond what you're just a product. Challenge. <laughs> the second thing that stands out is that it's a perception. We like to think there's this thing called reality, but really we have these mental models through which we filter the world, and our perception, our perceived reality is actually our reality. We don't know any different. We're always comparing that to some prior expectation. And customer experience sits in the gap between those two things. Now, the thing is, like we discussed with the cell phones, those expectations are changing over time. And usually, they're increasing. So what, what's happening to the gap? Bigger or smaller? Okay. I would say the gap is going to... Yeah, it's, it gets bigger, right? So in, in an extreme case, you might have your reality of experience falling very short of your expectations. And we know that's the definition of disappointment. Finally, it considers all the interactions that you have with the company, everything from the debit on your bank statement to the conversation at the braai, but also across time. And if you think about a very simple customer life stage model, first you might acquire a customer, so a sales process, then you serve that customer, deliver the product or the service, and eventually you might lose the customer or hopefully cross or upsell them and trigger another iteration of the cycle. But if you just think about the relative time over which each of these stages apply, you can see that the middle section could last, well, on a long-term contract, could last decades compared to the acquisition and possibly paying out a claim, maybe a few months. So how do you sustain customer experience over such a long period of time? I just want to show a little clip that shows why this matters. And then we'll discuss more about this in the next section. Can we have the video playing? Am I supposed to do something else? Customer experience matters. The purpose of business is to create and keep a customer, but keeping them is not so simple. Temkin Group research shows that 39% of consumers decrease their spending with a company after one single bad experience, and 17% stop spending altogether. Add to that how quickly consumers are sharing their bad experiences through word of mouth, Facebook, review sites like Yelp, and Twitter. So yes, customer experience matters. Trust me on this, I'm the voiceover guy. Successful companies capitalize on this secret by improving the customer experience. Customers that have a great experience with companies are nine times more likely to recommend them, eight times more likely to trust them, and seven times more likely to forgive their mistakes, to buy from them again, and to try new offerings. Even a modest improvement can generate a major increase in revenue. More than half of large companies strive to be customer experience leaders within three years, but few have found the magic. In the 2015 Temkin Experience ratings of 20 industries, only 4.4% earned excellent ratings, while 28% earned poor or very poor ratings. That's nearly seven times. So what stood out for you in that? Words like trust? Yeah? Think about that as we go through the next slides. What, the, we ended off by saying that lots of companies strive to do this, but very few get it right. But it's worth getting it right, because a study by Forrester 
showed the link between customer experience and shareholder value. And on the y-axis there, they studied actually the cumulative total returns of these listed companies over an eight-year period, from 2007 to 2014. They took their customer experience scores and they ranked them from highest to lowest, and they found that the companies with the top 10 scores showed um, a return over that period of over 100%, compared to the companies at the bottom 10, which achieved about 80% less over that period, over that same period, and compared to the market, which achieved about 70%. So, I mean, we've, we know about these things like brand value and goodwill, but here's some interesting stats that really put a value to customer experience and directly link it to shareholder value, suggesting that these things are now not as different as they used to be. They're becoming much more closely linked. There's also some evidence to show that in a period of downturn, so this period included the 2008-2009 period, customer experience leaders were less cyclical, so they were less affected by that downturn. So something speaks there maybe to the risk aspect. And what we're starting to see is really how strategy is becoming centered around customer experience. You might have seen this triangle representing strategy as a plan to maximize value within a given risk appetite and within certain cost constraints or resource constraints. And now we're saying, well, actually, the customer sits at the center of all of this, right? And now it's about value is actually how can you deliver the most exceptional customer experiences within your given risk and within your cost constraints. And when we say exceptional, we want desirable experiences, things that customers value, distinctive, so unique, showing that you recognize your customer and you've got their back, and consistent. We saw in that video, it was a very quick video, but I hope you picked up that after even one bad experience, customer value drops, and it's very hard to recover from that. So, after that quick run through customer experience, I'd like you to take 20 seconds and just pick out three things that stood out for you. And there's no right or wrong answer, so just whatever's sitting with you now. Can we have some music? <laughs> so, take 20 seconds and go. That's it. seconds left. Okay, and stop. So now I hope you're sitting next to someone because I want you to compare points. Another 10, 20 seconds. Let's see if, you, if you're covering the same material. So, go. <laughs> if you're not sitting next to someone, if you're not sitting next to someone, just move so you can, yeah, brilliant. Wonderful. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, so raise your hands if you both had at least three things. Do you have three things that stood out for you? Okay, and stop talking now. <laughs> did, you, did you have three things that stood out for you? I need you to raise your hands if you did, because you're going to now turn to the person next to you and give them a high five and say, we got it. So... <laughs> 
cool. Thanks. You know, it's nice to see this kind of liveliness. It gives me energy. Now I'm going to tell you a story. So, so let's settle down, sit back. Imagine running a steam train in a world where a hyperloop is possible. It still works, but it's less efficient than it might be. Imagine you have passengers commuting every day using the steam train, and some of it love, they love their little chuk-chuk train, right? But some passengers have heard about this hyperloop, and they've been chatting to their ticket sellers about it. You know, is it really so fast? and cheaper, and safer, and greener. Now, you love your passengers and you want to keep them, but the steam train is in need of some TLC. The engineers who built it have mostly retired, and they did leave behind some design spe specifications, but only the two remaining engineers actually understand those, and um, they're treated with great reverence, right? But their health is deteriorating, probably from the stress of keeping the train going within really tight budgets. Then there are the boiler mechanics and the ticket collectors. There are two types. Those that have been around for yonks and are really happy feeding the engine, punching tickets, helping passengers around the train. They're good at it. They enjoy it. But unfortunately, it's not easy to replace them because the second type are the young'uns who don't understand this stuff and don't really want to. I mean, it's unnecessary manual labor. Why would someone manually shovel coal? Why can't you just plug it in? And why do you have to punch tickets? Why isn't it biometric access? Like, why is it all so complicated? And they try, but they make mistakes. And then they leave and go and work on the Hyperloop. So senior management is trying hard to fix things, and they hire experts to help, and they have brilliant ideas, but many of them have never seen the inside of a steam train or met an angry passenger. Now, the train owner appreciates his steam train because it's a nice, steady source of income secured for many years yet. He understands their challenges, so he's got some capital, but he wants to build his own hyperloop now. The city council is considering the train's impact on the environment and asking questions about passenger safety standards. Meanwhile, the cost of coal is increasing, the engine is making funny noises, and last night, someone hacked through the fences and stole the tracks. So it's quite depressing, but let's see if we can find a happy ending. So, I'd like you, if you've never worked with legacy business before, just think about the roles in that story and the relationships between them and some of the risks that might be coming out, because we'll be using that now as we go through the rest of this. Legacy business is characterized by four Ps. So put your hands up and wiggle your fingers a little bit with four, your four fingers. And the first one is product, then platform, which is like an IT system, process, and there's a fourth one. What do you think the fourth one is? People, good. There's a little squiggly man, and you can Im imagine kind of the burden of holding this thing together. I drew him, by the way. And, and that whole package delivers an experience that is perceived to be suboptimal. Suboptimal does not mean not valuable, okay? It's just that relative to current expectations, it seems to be falling a little bit short. And remember, perceived is not really reality, not necessarily. So if I had to bring this into an insurance contract, um, some of the products that you might typically consider legacy business would be closed products, so like the universal-style products that were sold in the 1980s, uh, no longer sold, but still 
lots of value in force, and many of the large insurers have these, these types of products. Um, but they exist in other contexts. Banks have legacy business. Um, cell phones, I mean, you purchase a two-year cell phone contract and within 18 months you've got to upgrade it because the handset is um, obsolete. So it's not so much just about the length of the contract, but it's also how quickly the expectations are changing during that. Is, is this making sense? Okay. So we spoke a bit about some of the challenges of legacy business. And, um, you know, it, it really depends on the significance of the business that you have, the types of business that you've sold over the years, how you've invested in that, um, that combination, those four Ps, or not invested, because that will determine the gap relative to current expectations. So, so it's not necessarily a huge problem for everyone. You might have um, certain types of business that you consider legacy business, right? And these could lead to things like increased risk and capital requirements. Um, certainly, we hold data and regulatory reserves, but there's also operational risk involved here. And it contributes to many of the challenges, and Judy already led us into this, such as the TCF challenges, the perceived lack of transparency, high cost, why are insurance companies so slow to exploit new technology, um, and retrospective regulation can be a real challenge on this business. But something I don't know if we fully appreciate is the opportunity cost. It's one thing to think about where you are and what could go wrong, but it's something else to think about where you are versus where you could be. And I think, you know, legacy risk is really insidious. It shows up in all sorts of places that you would never know it's there unless you went looking for it. So, for example, I might go to a call center and think, how can I make this environment um, more efficient? Like we answer more calls or get our NPS scores up. But actually, when you sit with the, with the people and you analyze what they're doing, you see how legacy business is contributing to this kind of operational drag or slowness. And it's not just on that particular business. It's not like legacy business just works in isolation, because it can actually affect the future value of your business, your new business. A good example of this is like when you receive a complaint and it gets escalated to the ombudsman and it's now on the front page of the financial press, a customer doesn't know that that was a legacy product and it was sold with these, within this environment and with these conditions. They just see the company's name and they start asking, can I trust you? Now, what is that doing for your business? There's a strong angle here that could be, it could become a strategic risk. So, South African companies have done a lot on this. And um, so I'm just going to go through some of the, the options, but again, not going into too much detail. The detail is available afterward. So if you want to chat about that, we can. But I just want to give you a flavor of some of the options we could take to kind of solve the current legacy problems or challenges that we see today. So we're using the actuarial control cycle, right? We started with what the, the problem is, and these are some of the solutions that have been used. You could vary the terms of your contract, where that's allowed. So for example, you could review the premiums. Um, that, of course, comes with its own risks. You could freeze the contract. That means you're saying you can keep riding the steam train, 
as we agreed, but if you want more rides, new rides, why don't you use the Hyperloop instead? So things like voluntary premium increases, kind of saying, no, don't, don't put it in that legacy product. We've got this product that's much better value. Why don't you channel those premium increases into this product? And that's an interesting one because it accelerates the runoff of your legacy business. You're not compounding the problem. You could upgrade the contracts. So you could contact the customers and understand their current needs, cross-sell or upsell them into a more suitable product that delivers better value for them and for the shareholder. However, that's not always as practical, and we'll see just now in the next slide. You could also merge the contracts. So this is almost like saying, if you had 12 cars on your steam train, can we make it eight? So if you think of each carriage as a representation of the same customer value proposition, it's the same train, can you actually combine or condense those into a smaller set of products that is then much more easy and efficient to manage? That's an interesting one. And all of these product features, as actuaries, we, we're very comfortable with this part because we understand how these products work and, and or, or we have the skills to understand how they should work and deliver value. But on the platforms and processes, I, th I think we sort of assume that's like an IT thing and it should just kind of be left to the people who understand that stuff. Um, but there's actually a lot that we can do to influence that conversation because it's not just a separate IT thing. It's part of the package, right? You have to understand how the product works. You can standardize the processing while still making sure that it's delivering what you promised. You can migrate platforms. This is, it's, it might sound easy, but I mean, you can think about it as almost building a bridge between a steam train and a Hyperloop and trying to kind of get your, your steam train passengers onto the Hyperloop. So it, it's, um, it's challenging. <laughs> Some other things that you could do around the structure of the business. You could segment the legacy business and run it separately. Some UK companies have done this. And that increases management focus and kind of um, incentivizes them to really understand the, the unique risks in, in, of that business. Uh, they've done really cool stuff around financial engineering, securitizing the cash flows. I haven't seen that yet in South Africa, but... Um, what South African companies have done is they've gone a partial segmentation model where they have teams, usually of actuaries, um, together with a few operational people who, they're like a closed products team and they look after these products and understand how they can continue to deliver value. If it's really awful, you could sell it, but I mean, then you lose your passengers and I assume you don't want to do that. All of this has to be done while being fair to your customers not breaking shareholder value, so don't kill the EV. And can you do it while simplifying and integrating your business across the whole value chain? This is a real challenge, but it's also, if you get it right, a fundamental approach to risk management. I think we, we don't always appreciate the layers of complexity and how that itself is a risk. You see something that doesn't work or is non-standard, so you build in controls around it, but then you just get this compounded complexity. Whereas if you can do this, you just kind of simplify the whole thing end to end. It's really wonderful. But how do you know which is right? Which is right for you? So you could choose some options. Those are the columns. Um, 
and, and you, you decide what's right for your business. And then you think, what, what should I consider about this? So certainly, is it fair? What's the financial impact? Am I reducing the complexity in my business? There's a whole lot of other practical considerations um, around execution especially. And in the slides available afterwards, there's a case study that actually goes into more detail on these aspects. Really good article from McKinsey as well. So if you're interested, we can continue this conversation. But I like this view, because you can see the customer is at the center of it, and you can also see all the partners involved in delivering that customer experience. So can you select a way to manage your legacy business that sustains the value you promised to your customer, but also addresses the shareholder's need for this risk-reward optimization? This one, I think, is possibly really underestimated. An employee value proposition. As a new generation of employees comes onto the market and you're trying to attract the best and brightest, can you create the space for them to learn, to create and to innovate, and then to move on? And management, I'm sure, would just like, like space to focus on delivering the things that really matter. Advisors can be a very strong partner because a lot of legacy customers no longer have active advisors. And so here's an opportunity to partner them now with another advisor, kind of re-intermediate these clients. And the advisors may be able to negotiate ongoing advice fees. So they can become really powerful allies in this sort of process. Trustees might consider things like improved communication to policyholders. And regulators, of course, are a little bit, you know, kind of more secure in the knowledge that we're creating a safe and inclusive financial services sector. Are you involved in product development? The app doesn't work, so just raise your hands. <laughs> okay, that's really exciting because you are really the next stage. Okay, we're going to talk about how do you reduce creating future legacy business. And this is a really important question. We're not developing products anymore. We're innovating around customer experiences. And solving legacy business actually starts in the design phase. So, what can we do around design to make this business sort of more flexible? Can we design for maximum evolution while still meeting a customer need? Something that mining companies do very well is they have this idea, they have an exit strategy. So when they commission a new mine, they've also got to say how they're going to decommission it. And you know, people have retirement plans, so why don't our products and our platforms and our processes also have retirement plans? Some, I mean, fund managers do this as well. There's certain triggers that you look out for, and as soon as you hit those triggers, you start thinking, okay, I need to rationalize this business or retire this train somehow. Because legacy doesn't happen in a day. It takes a while for this gap to appear between reality and expectations. And you can actually do something a lot sooner. Prevention is better than cure. Really, it is with this. So how can you standardize and integrate the business, especially where you're doing mergers and acquisitions? So if you're going to take over a company, can you integrate it fully on a commercial basis, a regulatory basis, and an operational basis? And can you look at making your operations simpler, better, faster, cheaper, but doing that on commercial terms? Now, that is what management is supposed to do, but actuaries can actually 
really help elevate the conversation in this space, I believe. Because IT projects are massive. I mean, you could blow 500 million rand on a new system. But do you really understand the value that's going to come out of it? How is it going to emerge over time? We, we can contribute to that conversation. Communication, you might not think as an obvious one to manage your legacy business, but just think about how we spoke about perceived reality. It's not necessarily the truth, right? So what if we could share our perspectives about what makes something valuable? For example, some legacy products are actually really great, like defined benefit pension funds. I, I kind of feel a bit of FOMO there. I lost out on that one. Um, investment guarantees, the likes of which you won't find today in the market. So those customers actually have a really good deal. But what if they're just focusing on the high termination charges and thinking this product is not delivering value? So if you have that conversation with customers and advisors, certainly it's not a, an easy thing. It's not like you can just send a letter, but it speaks to the more proactive communication. And we saw some, um, some great examples from the behavioral economics session earlier about how you, can, how you can maybe make this easier and more accessible for your policyholders. And you don't have to communicate more. It's about communicating better through your existing touch points. And then how can you organize the business so that you incentivize or allow for more focus on existing business? Now, growth is important, and of course, Value of new business matters. But to the extent that it draws resources away from investing in existing business, that can become this sort of problem. So is there a way to allow management bandwidth to kind of look at the existing business and think about it more actively? Um, segmentation, where we discuss splitting out the contracts, that's one option. I'm not sure if that fully achieves the opportunities that you could have there to kind of scale the business and integrate the operations. I mean, maybe you can think about that, but it, is, it has been used. And obviously, knowledge management. So complexity in itself is not a problem, but coupled with scarce skills and poor institutional knowledge man management, this becomes a big problem and one that is very difficult to solve in a, in a short space of time. So, the most important part of this, what can you take from this? Okay. So we've spoken about customer experiences and how that is actually very strongly linked to value. It's not just the separate thing, it's, it's a part of a three-piece puzzle, value, risk, and cost. And we spoke about how actually customer experience is not a constant thing, it's constantly evolving. As the environment changes, your experiences change as well. So, legacy is not going to ever go away. In fact, in a rapidly changing environment, you could say that legacy risk is going to increase. Do you agree? Yeah. And it's not just about the products. We understand the product angle, but it's about how that is actually delivered to the customer through the, pro the processes, the IT interfaces, and the people. Very strong angle. Because it's what's that actually reaches the customer. That's what matters. That's what creates that emotional experience. So I'd like you to think now about what we discussed. We talked about customer experience in one specific example being legacy management. But I know not all of you, that's not your day job, right? 
Not all of you. How many of you work in legacy management as a day job? Oh, okay. One. Okay. Yeah, hey, Calvin. Um, <laughs> so for the rest of you, we, we can have a more detailed conversation around this. But for the rest of you, what is your day job? And how is this going to relate to what you go back and do tomorrow? Not just this presentation, but try to join the dots with everything else you learned at this really fascinating convention. So the behavioral economics, um, the thing about intrinsic in incentives and motivation, whatever sessions you've been to, how does that relate? So I just got a few ideas, all right? You might say that actuaries are involved in kind of three general areas. We want to grow the value of new business, maximize the value of existing business, and minimize risk. Okay, very simplistic. So what if we designed experiences across the value chain and across time? So not how the product is going to perform now, but how, what will it look like in five years' time? What if we launched beta versions or prototypes of these products and asked our customers to design the rest? And can we distribute by pulling customers through networks? We've already started this, actually. It's quite exciting. And then when we talk about the value in force, we tend to think about the value of the contracts in force. But is there a way to measure the value of that relationship? Maybe you could weight it for your most valuable customers or build in something around the customer satisfaction metric or the customer lifetime value. The existing measures, of course, cannot be replaced, but can they be integrated in some way to give a fuller picture of what is possible? And similarly with risk, we spoke about how where you are relative to where you could be. And that's not an easy question, and I actually don't know the answer. <laughs> but if we don't figure it out, then who? So we can make a contribution here to understand what, what is opportunity cost and how do you really get a handle on the level of drag in your business that's inhibiting you from actually delivering on your goals. And what if we looked at risk as actually the downside variability in customer experience, in addition to all our other risk measures, which I know they are a lot, this is sounding like a lot of work, but it's just a different angle on, on risk. We, we, we saw how customer experience has to be consistent, right? So it's not so much that it um, varies, but it's more the downside variability that you're really worried about, and that could constitute a risk to your business. So these are just some ideas, but um, I'm going to give you another 30 seconds. Is that cool? 30 seconds to think about what are you going to do tomorrow and how are you going to apply all of this to that role. So, go. You can have more music. <laughs> Just to help the thinking a little bit. <laughs> So I saw you guys were already chatting. That's actually great. 
So that probably leads very nicely into question time. So whatever you were chatting, if you'd like to share with us, <laughs> we'll take some questions. Thanks. <laughs> Do you want to add what is... Oh, okay. <laughs> Should I just leave this? Some problems with the roving mic, so I don't know if you just want to try and ask the question in a loud voice. Morning, thanks. Um, I just want to go back to your point about the importance of customer experience and customer expectations. So, a lot of research seems to suggest that, and just anecdotal evidence as well, that customers are not able to articulate what their expectations are. They can generally only tell you after the fact that you've exceeded my expectation or not. Yeah. So, which I think is linked to your point about um, constantly changing uh, targets in terms of the, the expectation from the customer. Yeah. How, how do you think um, we can design products that take that into account given its fluidity and how hard it is to kind of uh, understand it. Because things like surveys and yeah. uh, even focus groups yeah. are not as rich in capturing things like Absolutely. that. That's an excellent question. Does anyone else have that question? Yeah, good. Killing two with one. Because, I, I mean, I actually don't know the, an the answer, but I'm really glad you're asking that question because that is the question. How do you design this thing? And, you know, you're absolutely right. Surveys, you, they can cost a lot of money, and they give you some theoretical models of what customers, they kind of box customers into like maybe five categories and say, okay, there's your customer service strategy. But actually, I think that video that we watched a clip of goes on to suggest that the key to customer experience is actually employees. It's employee engagement. That 4% of companies that really stood out, um, you know, like half of them were trying, but only 4% got it right. They had the most engaged employees because organizations are just people and customers are people. Organizations can't serve customers. People must serve people. And in your operating environment, if you can create the space to have those real interactions, real, like, conversations, not a script. Uh, well, you need, you need scripts, right? There's a space for that, poppy and all of those things. But can you create the space to have a real human interaction? Because that's where the experience lies. Customers will forgive you if you fall short of their expectations, but they will engage with you to tell you how can you make it better, and they will continue to, to stay with you if you show that willingness to change and engage. Excellent question. Anyone else? Yeah. You want to just shout? <laughs> we were all. Okay. Um, just a, a couple of observations. Um, I think we, we need to be careful to. Sorry, who's speaking? Who's Sorry, speaking? John Davidge from Old Mutual. Can you stand up? Oh, there you are. <laughs> um, we, we, we've got a, a challenge in understanding the difference between customer experience and customer value, because you, you picked up on the fact that 
Um, very often there, there is great customer value in, in some of our legacy products, but customers don't perceive it. Um, and very often the danger is that customers drop the value because yeah, they, yeah. they've had the bad experience. Yeah. Um, I work in, in distribution and I think one of the biggest changes that we need to get our minds around in, in the financial services industry, um, and I think particularly in life insurance, is that we don't have a single acquisition point. So we don't sell customers once, um, like 20 years ago. We sell customers every single month when they make the commitment to pay a premium. Um, and until we wrap our minds around that and our experiences in convincing customers every month with, with how we've engaged them to say, Absolutely. look, this is the value what, that you're getting yeah. from investing this month. Um, with paying your premium this month. I think trying to make that mindset in our, in our institutions um, will, will help to, to build the change that you, you're trying to get us towards. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I, I just have one concern <coughs> around your, your beta product testing. Um, as much as that's kind of best practice uh, in other industries, I fear that that could lead to a proliferation of legacy um, because if you've got kind of every customer with a, with a customized product just for them, the, the systems and the, the resources that you would need to support each of those different contracts um, and, and different models for them could, could just lead to a, an absolute proliferation of the problem that you're trying to resolve. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Well, that first point about selling customers every month is absolutely brilliant and i think something we need to take back to our own companies because you're exactly right that's the challenge you think that you sell a customer once 20 years ago but it's actually an ongoing process and how is the contract actually keeping pace with that value that you're supposed to deliver the second point around beta versions i must say that was just like me throwing out ideas from like the tech industry but i didn't mean that every customer should have their product on their platform, their system. More like, instead of doing big, big bang product launches, where you develop a product in-house and then kind of launch it to the whole country or the whole of Africa, can you launch it to a specific uh, test group and ask them to help you design it better? And what if you designed pieces of the product and specified the relationship between them? So what if the product was actually the relationship between these building blocks of product propositions, and not just um, this is your product and this is your product, but could you create a basket, a basket product offering, where a customer could almost tailor what they want um, without you actually having to maintain, a, like you said, a proliferation of products? It's an idea. <laughs> three out of three for Old Mutual. <clears throat> We've obviously got a lot of legacy um, issues. <laughs> um, I'm actually from Liberty. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying Malusi, myself, and John are all from, Oh, oh, uh, right, okay, I didn't get that, sorry, <laughs> a bit slow. <laughs> um, I, I wondered if you had any um, more concrete ideas or any um, actual examples of who's done uh, this thing of designing with future legacy in mind well. I'm struggling to really think what, you know, is yeah. it possible to do it so well that you avoid the legacy hassles that, you, that yeah. we've all ended up with, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't 
think it's possible to avoid it. Uh, like, I'm not saying you can future-proof your business, and I don't think it's practical to try to, but certainly there have been um, examples of how this can be done in other industries. I mentioned the mining example, where when you design, when you commission a mine, you also think about how you're going to take it offline, like how you're going to rehabilitate the environment afterward. Fund managers also do this very well. Um, something that another company does is they monitor this thing they call technical debt. So they launch a product, and then they look at, they might not launch it with the servicing that it's going to require in, say, five years' time, because it's not required right now. But they monitor the delivery of that, and they start building that... Um, that, what do you call it, like an ecosystem, those four Ps, in order to deliver that in future. So kind of a forward-looking assessment of customer experience. Um, certainly, I don't know of like, anyone that's really kind of um, taken it beyond that, but that's why we're having this conversation, because we can take it beyond that. Yeah. Hi, um, Jean. I'm also from Old Mutual. Um, luckily, we all work in, in different areas, so um, we've actually got different perspectives on things. Um, my question is, isn't the real problem, and I know managing the current league is an issue, but looking forward, isn't the real problem the fact that we do see ourselves as selling long-term contracts? Yeah. Um, and the industry in, in almost all the different lines of business has actually changed where um, you know, it isn't a 20-year contract anymore. Um, yes, there's some commitment, but that commitment can be stopped um, without any repercussions, yeah. at least from 2017 onwards. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, we should be starting to think more like a cell phone company or a software company yeah. because, you know, they, they're very good at upgrading because you're actually not committing to Windows for 20 years. You're committing to Windows for two, two years. And if they make an error, like with Windows 8, they'll upgrade you for free. Um, but, yeah. Ah, so, uh, yeah, what's your views on that? Yeah, interesting point. I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that as much as we talk about customer experience, there has to be some effectiveness angle. So there's still a place, I believe, for providing a longer-term contract. I mean, we have tried to provide one-year reviewable term contracts, and maybe that's suitable for some customers, but I'm not sure if it's suitable for everyone. So there's still a place for longer-term contracts. Well, I, I don't know. Do you agree? Yeah? Um, and the second thing is it's not just the term of the contract. It's about how quickly the expectations change regarding that. So, yes, shortening the term definitely reduces the risk. It's like you know, when you value an option, the, the longer the time, the more um, time value risk there. Okay, my CTA is Sibostrowski. Anyway, I'll stick to what I know. But the point is shortening the, the term does reduce the risk, but it doesn't eliminate it. So we do need to think about those more proactive ways of selling the value on a kind of more regular basis. Um, but yeah, a great question. It's a good question. We've it's probably fine. got time for two or three more questions, so it's a challenge to the other companies to ask. <laughs> I think I've got I was, was going to... Sorry, Judy? Okay, I wasn't going to ask the question based on the company I'd come from, but um, 
I'll, I'll go ahead. I think in terms of inheriting a legacy book and managing a legacy book, what you often deal with is inheriting what the product issues were. But I think one of the bigger problems is inheriting advice risk and mis-selling and policies that are 27 years or longer. Yeah. And it's really dealing with that because you might be able to change and move to a great, better product, but you still have those huge expenses that you still have to cover. So how do you manage that from a customer perspective? So let me check if I understand the question. You're saying when you acquire a book of business... Uh, so you, so you, you want to correct... Say you, you've got a client and you want to remediate, uh, a yeah. new advisor comes in and wants to do the right thing, and he wants to put uh, the client in the right product, but the huge acquisition expenses that are still sitting on the old legacy product. Yeah. Who bears, bears the cost of fixing Excellent that? question. And I'm not sure if it came out strongly enough, but when we talked about the three principles, like we mentioned fairness, um, value to shareholders, and simplifying the business, those are sometimes conflicting. And that's a great example of where you know, you're faced with this decision of, firstly, what is best for the customer right now, but like, how do you then reconcile that with the way these products were designed in the past? Something that a couple of companies have done is that they've come up with a new basis for their legacy products, recognizing that the cost of administering them in your operations could actually outweigh the cost of um, you know, giving up some of the, the surrender penalties, for example. So they waive the, um, some of the termination charges, perhaps. I'm not sure if they waive all. But, and, and they create a kind of a smoother glide path for these customers in legacy products to move into newer generation customers. And they engage with the intermediaries about that so they can actually have the conversation on what is actually best for the customer and how can you kind of work together to achieve that outcome. And that's why I like that slide with the, the customer at the center and all these other people around them because there's such power in partnerships. And I don't know if we're fully exploiting that because they really, if we, we don't have to do this alone. There's a lot, if you can find these win-win solutions, it, in the end, everyone benefits. Not easy though. Um, I, I'm not from Old Mutual. Yes, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, John. Um, I just have a comment that uh, I think maybe the problem lies in defining the product as a product. The customer experience is actually the product. Um, yeah. Especially in life insurance, a customer does not think that they have a universal life <laughs> 2000 series product that was designed by Yageshri um, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and to them, getting an SMS of their fund value might actually matter more than the underlying product. And I also think if we're not careful, actuaries are going to become secondary or tertiary in insurance when the likes of a, I don't want to say it, Uber or Google or whatever launches an mm -hmm. insurance product that actually understands what the true expectations of experience are. Yeah, brilliant point. I think it's because I don't know, we see products, like you say, as this product, but it's actually an ecosystem that exists around that product. The customer never sees what you think of as the product. They see a, a, a collection of the outcome of a number of processes and platforms and people and technologies, and that is actually the product. So, the, so I guess the challenge is actually this asymmetry between 
what you think is the product and what the customer experiences. Very good point. And thank you for mentioning the disruptive, potentially disruptive technologies coming into insurance. I don't know if you've heard about crowdfunding, crowdfunded insurance, and how that, I mean, a lot of people seem to have taken that up. So that poses a challenge to the industry as well. Okay, I think there's time for one more question, if anybody's got a burning question to ask. I'm struggling to see with the light, so I think we'll have to do a Yageshi wave or something if you want, <laughs> want to, to make a question. Okay, I think if, that's, if there are no more questions, then I think it's time to thank um, Yageshi for a thought-provoking presentation and a challenge, and I guess that we'll see more on this as we come to the next convention, because I think it's quite topical across, across the business, and we've got lots to, to think about to move things forward. So thanks very much, Higeshi.